The 2016 National Book Award for Nonfiction went to a UF professor of history, Ibram X. Kendi. The book, called Stamped from the Beginning, The Definitive History of Racist Ideas in America, chronicles racist thought through history, as the title might imply. It comes at a time when racial issues continue to be pronounced and controversial in the United States. Stories of white police shooting unarmed black men seem to be ever more frequent, while criticism of the Black Lives Matter movement remains vocal and pronounced. Not only does the nation seem to be divided about how to mend racial issues, but also on the nature of those issues as a whole. Kendi's book examines the issues of yesterday and hopes to demonstrate how they became the issues of today. In this way, the book hopes to create a conclusion to not only the nature of racial issues, but also to their solution. In any case, it is a history book much different from any you read in high school, and much more worth reading. The book takes its name from a quote made by U.S. Senator Jefferson Davis before he would go on to become the President of the Confederate States of America. In a speech, Davis called the black race stamped from the beginning, referring to a natural inferiority that predisposed African people to servitude. The book begins at the cornerstone of Western thought in the philosophy of Aristotle and takes the reader through to the present, showing the evolution and impact of racism. I got the chance to sit down with Kendi and speak with him about his book. Ibram X. Kendi, I'm a historian at the University of Florida. So the foreword of your book cited the shooting of Trayvon Martin uh, as what prompted you to, to write the book. Why was this the response you felt was necessary? And so I actually was already sort of thinking about writing the book and I'd already sort of began research on the book. But I think that shooting and the shootings that sort of continue to follow, I think inspired me to write the book because of course those shootings generated huge debates, racial debates in our country. And and I began to start seeing that these racial debates that we're having are actually quite old. You know, we've been having similar debates about race for a very long time. And so I think, so I thought people seeing that long history would give them better clarity for understanding what's happening now. Do you think Stamp from the Beginning is a new look at the racial climate within the United States, or is it more of a continuation of an ongoing conversation? I think it's to a certain extent a new look. And so I, the sort of, many aspects that I try to sort of get people to think differently in terms of our, our racial history. First and foremost, I chronicle not just the history of racial progress, but the simultaneous progression of racism and the way that racist ideas play out and that essentially if you believe racist policies have continuously caused racial inequality, but if you believe that there's something wrong or inferior about black people, then you won't see that progression of racism. You'll see the progression of what's wrong with black people. And so that, I think, is, is a new concept. Of course, most people, when they think of assimilationist ideas, um, ideas that suggest that in this case, black people are either culturally or behaviorally inferior, they don't identify those as racist ideas. And so clearly the book does, and therefore it takes the history of racist ideas back because most histories begin around the 1820s. And so, of course, the history begins with the founding of colonial America and it even goes back to the origins of racist ideas. And so I think those are probably two of the major ones. 
One thing that I noticed reading your book, I found myself feeling as though I was I was tracing a line from a beginning point forward. And um, I think one, one thing that surprised me when I first opened up the book was how far back that starting point was. I mean, you were you, part of your opening opening of the book is talking about ancient Greece mm-hmm. um, and uh, and philosophies of Aristotle. Was that something that you found through your research? Was it something that you were interested in, um, or does does it something that like you were that you came in thinking, oh, I want to see how far back this goes, or were you surprised at how far back it went? Well, I didn't. I was surprised by how far back it went. I mean, you, you, of course, uncover an idea, and then you find the roots of that idea, and then you find the roots of those roots, and the roots of those roots, and it sort of, at least as related to notions of human hierarchy uh, within the Western world, it, it traced back to to Aristotle, and so I felt I had to take it there, and I think if if I think those ideas of human hierarchy were, of course, the foundation for ideas of racial hierarchy. Your book separates most people into three idealistic groups, segregationists, assimilationists, and anti-racists. Can you briefly explain those groups and why you chose them? Sure. I think part of the confusion that we have in discussing race in America is because first and foremost, nobody wants to identify their ideas as racist and not even segregationists, not even slaveholders identify their ideas as racist. And so I felt it was extremely important to define uh, racist ideas. And I think that's one of the major things the book does. That's why they called it the definitive history. And in defining racist ideas, I I wanted to show that there actually was two types or two kinds of racist ideas. The first, a segregationist idea that suggests that in this case, because the book, of course, chronicled anti-black racist ideas. So segregationist ideas suggest that black people are genetically and biologically and therefore permanently inferior. Assimilationists typically believe the racial groups are biologically equal, but they believe black people are inferior by culture or behavior. And so basically segregationists believe black people are inferior by nature. Assimilationists believe they're inferior by nurture. While anti-racists do not believe that black people are in any ways inferior to any other group. The term anti-racist, um, I think, in some way implies some kind of reaction, you know, mm-hmm. anti-racist. Yeah. To be an anti-racist, is that to hold a set of ideas, or is it to take action in a certain way? It's a great question. I'm actually in the process of working on a book that will be historically grounded, that will basically probably be called how to be an anti-racist and it will be composed of both ideas and action and i think the reason why that term to a certain extent it is reactionary because you know as i chronicle and stand from the beginning really racist ideas are largely the common sense of americans and so those who are being or trying to become anti-racist truly have to react and challenge what has been taught to them usually their whole lives. In your book, you often use the language of each group, speaking as a segregationist, as an assimilationist, and as an anti-racist. I was surprised at how unjudgmental certain passages read, yet you explicitly write off what you call the closed-minded. Why did you make this choice? So I think 
that the underlying thesis of the text, that really the origins of racism itself is self-interest, and then self-interest is what led to our racist policies, and those who have been benefiting from those policies or those who have produced racist ideas to justify those policies, which then led to our ignorance and sort of hate. And, and, and so there, there are two kinds, I think, of closed-minded people. There are people who are closed-minded because, and there's no way you can change their minds about those racist ideas because those ideas benefit them. I mean, it's just like trying to convince a criminal who who has done a crime to basically plead guilty. Like, why would they do that? That's against their interest, right? Uh, and so those people are simply not going to do it. And I know my book is not going to to convince them to 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 plead, you know, guilty to their racist ideas. But then you have other groups, you have other people who are simply not willing to self-critique. And in that whether that's related to racist ideas or really anything else, like, you know, whether they did a bad job on their test or whether they should have taken out the trash earlier, they just don't sit well with self-critique. And typically people who don't sit well with self-critique are typically closed-minded people. When there's so many open-minded Americans of all races, why would I spend my time um, on closed-minded people who's going to take a lot more time? Would you say that that there is a, a distinct difference between closed-minded and racist? Those two aren't mutually exclusive? So I think that those who are racist, and again, these are, you know, again, I distinguished in the book between the producers of racist ideas and the consumers. And, and you have consumers who have racist ideas, but they may still be open-minded. But then you have consumers of racist ideas who are closed-minded. And, and so I, I think that, you know, a, the a chances of a person who has racist ideas and who simultaneously are closed-minded of ever becoming an anti-racist, of course, is very slim. Part of what made your book make such so much of a splash, aside from how amazingly written it is, is just like the tensions in the racial conversation mm -hmm. that we're having in the, in the United States right now. And I think that many people would, would see your book and see your book draw lines into the present and say, oh, but we live in, and they would use the term, post-racial society. Mm -hmm. What do you feel about that term? So one of the things I've realized, I think actually in recent weeks, is that really every racist idea in history has functioned as a post-racial idea. Because what every racist idea has done is, is, is it has told others that racist policies are not causing that, that condition among black people or those racial disparities because racism doesn't exist. It is what's wrong and inferior about black people. So it's pointed people towards inferiorities of, you know, supposed inferiorities of, of black people. And so I'm not surprised that you have people who are imagining that the nation is post-racial. You had people who imagined that the South was separate but equal. You had people who imagined that slaveholders treated their slaves like their children um, in a humane way. I mean, this is, this is propaganda, and people have been making this type of propaganda uh, for a very long time. Do you, do you think that that's possible or even like a post-racial society? Is that possible or even um, 
something that we want? It would depend on what people would consider to be a post-racial society in terms of whether it is something that we want. I advocate for an anti-racist society as opposed to a post-racial society. And the reason why I'm saying this is because some people would say that a post-racial society would not have any black spaces. In other words, black churches wouldn't exist, black clubs, black schools, black institutions, African-American culture would not exist, right? And and so for people who actually enjoy um, partaking in these spaces, whether black or even non-black, you know, of course, they <laughs> would rather continue to have those spaces, but they would rather those spaces to have as many resources as the spaces of others. But then you have other people who don't value those spaces and who like to get rid of those spaces, and they imagine a post-racial America would, would have that. I don't, you know, for me, it's it's really about, you know, the groups and, and thereby the individuals having equal access to opportunities, having an equal amount of resources, and, you know, discrimination not holding black people um, back. Again, that is that is something that as we are coming into into the present, a lot of the conversations that we have are about valuing black spaces or, mm-hmm. or and, and valuing those kinds of things. Um, and I think that some some people who who are a little bit unsure, maybe are unfamiliar with black spaces or mm-hmm. unfamiliar with with that kind of cultural difference, but value, might find those ideas to be almost similar to separate but equal. Mm-hmm. What differentiates this idea of um, supporting separate spaces mm-hmm. equally and having separate but equal spaces. It, it makes sense that people would be concerned about that. Um, however, there's some huge differences. And the most obvious difference is typically if you go to these black spaces, all of the people there are not going to be black, <laughs> first and foremost, right? Because, you know, typically... You know, again, that's why I said people who are not even black who enjoy these spaces. You know, you have white people who enjoy going to black clubs. You have white people who enjoy going to uh, black churches. I mean, and they should have the ability to do that. You know, segregation is a scenario in which you have these sort of different, let's say, cultural spaces. And groups are basically disallowed from going to one or the other. And one of the the cultural spaces is over-resourced and the other is completely under-resourced. One is completely valued and the other is completely devalued. And so, you know, I I don't see anything wrong with us having the ability to have a Chinese restaurant and an Indian restaurant and an Italian restaurant and uh, a Greek restaurant and, and, and... a soul food restaurant. To me, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, and so I think when, when people really think of, quote, whatever they're thinking about, they consider to be true integration or whatever, none of those restaurants would exist, right? None of them, because we'd only have to, I guess, have one American restaurant. It'd have to be the same, right? We can't have differences in food. We can't dance differently. We can't have different music. It all has to be the same. And, and to me, the beauty of humanity uh, is our difference. Your work drew many parallels to racial issues of the past to ones of the present. I think it was kind of the point. Mm-hmm. Um, clearly, we live in a different world today than we did in the early days of European colonialism. Um, but do you think there has been any meaningful change in the way people feel and think about race? Hmm. So I would say 
that it appears that segregationist ideas, or I should say traditional segregationist ideas that the racial, that black people are genetically a different and inferior species. And, and, and there is, it's, it's not often that people say that and express that. But people do think that there are problems with black behaviors and problems with, with, with black culture. But then also people think that there's a such thing as black blood and black diseases. And uh, so it's an interesting moment in which there are some carryovers for segregationist ideas. Uh, but simultaneously, it's not nearly as much as it, there was 100 years ago when segregationist ideas were pervasive, when the eugenics movement was dominating, uh, you know, American ideas, and not just ruling that black people were genetically distinct and inferior, but also every non-Anglo-Saxon set of Europeans were genetically distinct and inferior. Poor people and middle-income people were genetically inferior to rich people. Women were genetic. I mean, it was everybody, right? Um, and so the, I think assimilationist and even anti-racist ideas are a lot more prominent than they, than, than they had been. However, they were prominent before the 1820s. So you've had this sort of, before the 1820s, assimilationist ideas were very prominent. And then segregationist ideas took over for the next 100 years. And for the last sort of 50 to 60 years, assimilationist ideas have been prominent. From the research that you did to compile this book, um, you you know, you, you found a lot of, you know, a lot of things pointing towards this point, but of course, you know, we're going to, this point is just going to be another dot in at the continuation as mm -hmm. we go forward. S seeing all of that, researching all of it, compiling it, has that given you any insight into strategies that work for moving away from segregationist, assimilationist ideas? So I think first and foremost, as it relates to ideas, I think people should focus less on not being racist and more on becoming an anti-racist. And, and, and the reason why I say that is because for people to think about what it means to truly think about an anti-racist and apply that to their own ideas. Because, you know, an anti-racist truly believes that the racial groups are equal. And therefore, if there are disparities and inequities, it must be the result of discrimination. It's a very simple idea, but then when we start trying to apply it to many of our ideas, it becomes a lot more complex and difficult. So I, I encourage people to focus on becoming an anti-racist. And then when you become an anti-racist from an ideological sense, you then realize that the problems of race are really racist policies, are really discrimination, and then you focus your efforts on challenging and eliminating those. And so we've had racial progress because we've had Americans who've willingly been able to challenge or successfully been able to challenge racial discrimination. You, you spoke a lot about self-interest um, as a, a reason for racist ideas and for the reasons for acceptance of racist ideas. And to what extent is the the racial or the racist economic? So I think that's one of the that's one of the forms of self interest that has led to racist policies. I mean, clearly slavery was primarily an economic enterprise, right? People made a lot of money uh, by enslaving other people, 
But at the same time, you've had politicians who recognize that their constituents have racist ideas and they've manipulated those ideas to get into office. You've had, let's say, scholars who recognized that there were certain racist ideas that if they put forth um, or based their studies on that they could get funding and therefore, you know, get the more funding they get the more they're going to increase their own prestige. And so in other words, racism, for some, benefited their professions. And so they pursued it not necessarily because they had those racist ideas, but because they recognized that they can gain from it. And and I think all three of those, you know, politics, economics, and culture has, has led to these people creating these policies or defending them. Do you feel like the process of writing this book has opened your eyes to any kind of different ways of thinking? Like, where were you when you wanted to start this project, and where are you now? So I think before I started this project, I did not have a clear-cut definition of a racist idea in my mind, which then allowed me to not recognize the ways in which I had consumed or expressed racist ideas. And so once I sort of put down basically marked down that definition, you know, I had to interrogate my own ideas and uh, before I could interrogate anyone else's. And so, you know, many people have talked about the way that the book has changed them, but before the book could change anybody, it actually changed me. Kindy's book provides a much broader perspective on racism. Even though most of the book chronicles the past, I believe what it does best is give its reader a direction for the future. History often focuses on what was done wrong and the work and sacrifice people undertook to right those wrongs. But Kindy's ideas focus not on what was done wrong, but what has been done right. Maybe focusing on doing good rather than simply not doing bad is a more effective way to work through the issues with which we are faced. I encourage everyone to read this book, as it is, if nothing else, a fascinating and engaging perspective on our collective past. The book is stamped from the beginning. The Definitive History of Racist Ideas in America by Ibram X. Kendi. Luke Sullivan, WUFT.